If you've been following along for a while, you've come to uh, you've come to know the format that we do here on this show, and so I hope you'll uh, you'll allow me to take a little bit of a departure today. We're going to try something new. Today, I'm sitting down uh, to interview uh, a guy named Nathan Mergen, who, in addition to being a very good friend of mine, is the chef and owner of a restaurant called 107 State. It just opened up in the heart of Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, for as long as I've known uh, Nathan, which has been more than a decade, uh, I know that he's dreamt of owning his own restaurant, of opening his own restaurant. And so that dream is finally realized. And uh, and I wanted to sit down and really get his take on things uh, to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly because he's got a really interesting trajectory. Uh, the way he wound up uh, in Madison uh, with this restaurant is really unique, um, and I think it's probably going to be helpful for uh, for all of us uh, who are in the restaurants to uh, to hear his take on things, to hear what he's dealing with, to hear what he's struggling with. So I hope you enjoy this. Without any further ado, uh, my interview with Nathan Mergen of 107 State. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who can see when shown, and those who will never see. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for everyone in the middle. everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly marketing podcast dedicated entirely to chefs and restaurant owners. So usually each week we explore a single topic that somehow relates back to marketing restaurants. Uh, but this one's going to be a bit different, a bit longer too, because this week I'm being joined by Nathan Mergen, uh, the chef owner of a new restaurant that just opened up in Madison, Wisconsin called 107 State. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So Nathan, your journey is um, is certainly unique. Uh, the restaurant life has taken you to incredible places, which we will talk about. Uh, but now you've actually returned back to your hometown to uh, raise a family and to open up a place of your own, a place you've been dreaming about for as long as I've known you. And, um, and to give everyone out there a bit of context, uh, Nathan and I have actually known each other for more than a decade. Uh, our wives uh, were very good friends. Uh, still are, in fact, and uh, we met each other through them. And even though Nathan and his wife, Michelle, moved away, uh, the four of us have remained close. Um, so I guess let's start there, because uh, because you actually met your wife uh, while you were working together, right? Can you can you tell me that story? Uh, yeah, I had opened up uh, two restaurants with Saxoth Avenue and, and was, like when I moved to New York, I had a bunch of goals and things that I wanted to do for myself. And working with uh, high-end, high-level restaurateurs and high-level restaurants um, was important to me, and I kind of fell into a job at Beko on 46th Street, which was, which is Joe Bastianich's uh, first restaurant that he opened up on his own. Uh, even though it's always been attributed to his himself and his mom, it was really his place originally. And I became service director there. And my my wife, uh, when I went in for my interview, and about a month after that, we went on our first date. I was not her boss, so she felt like it was okay for us to go out. Because she was a, a bartender there at Beko, correct? Correct. She bartended there. She was at first a host for some time and then fell into a bartending position and did that for a couple of years before she got her master's. So totally different departments. It was all okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then uh, my wife and I actually became regulars at Beko. We would... Uh, hang out at Michelle's bar and 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 eat there and drink, which is eventually how we got to know uh, how we got to know you. And then, 
you know, we got to double date and we got to know your daughter and, and on and on and on. So now your trajectory is a bit unique because you started off working uh, back a house as a cook and then a chef before eventually making the switch to front of the house into management. So if we may, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Tell me, um, tell me how you first got into food and then when did you decide that this was a career you wanted to pursue? I was probably about 18, 19 years old and I was watching cooking shows and that's kind of where it all started. I was basically, my father looked at me and he goes, if you're going to sit here and watch cooking shows all day, you might as well go someplace and learn how to work. So I started uh, at a small Italian restaurant uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin called Pepino's on University Avenue, which is now closed. And uh, I was there for three to four years and learned a lot. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the most highbrow uh, food at the time, but, it, but uh, Pepino respected me and I respected him and uh, that was kind of where it all started. And I went from there into all sorts of different odd jobs after that. I had a high level of training in like Italian food for the time that I was in. And then I, I worked at a little diner and did, you know, short order cooking. I did bars and taverns. And when I went to college, I worked at a place called the Creamery, which was about an hour outside of Minneapolis. And it was a fine dining style establishment, white tablecloth, um, located in the country. Oh, they raised all their own products in season. Uh, and that was kind of where I continued my journey with food. I worked with Richard Tom, uh, Thomas, who was a fantastic chef. And he was the first person to ever kind of give me the reins of a kitchen and say, go ahead and do what you want. Just make sure you don't screw it up. And I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of how Richard was. Um, I would give him things to taste. And after a while, he's like, I don't need to taste it. I know it's good. Um, so that was when I was reaching a complimentary level. And then uh, I came back to Madison after college and I, just kind of fell into a management job. Um, I was like, well, let's get out of the kitchen for a little while and see what happens. And I became a banquet manager at the, uh, what, the previous incarnation of the Edgewater Hotel uh, back in 2000. And I was there for four years. And it was, it was interesting. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I, I knew how to throw a party. So I figured I could just kind of hone my skills that way. I didn't necessarily have uh, what I would call any manager training, but I knew how to retain staff. I knew how to you know, treat them well. I knew how to take care of my, my captains that needed uh, a little more motivation at different times or just to be heard, whatever it would be. Uh, but those were all things that were intrinsic uh, to the, my nature from growing up with the father that I had as well. Yeah. And, and knowing you as I do, I, you know, you're quiet, patient, steady. Uh, you do a lot of listening, which um, I've come to learn is a uh, is a quality that's uh, that's often really important but uh, undervalued in managers. Um, so you, so it wasn't really a deliberate move uh, to go into front of the house, or was it just I want to learn more about that, or was it did it really just come from a desire to to get out of the kitchen and learn something new? So to be honest with you, it was just an opportunity, um, and I'm like, well, maybe I can make more money at this. I mean, to be honest with you, I think that's what it was. And Listen, that's not to be uh, not to be uh, diminished. No, not at all. Uh, and it was, it was a step up monetarily. It wasn't consistent because you were coming out of a tip pool out of a banquet program. So when it was busy, it did really well. When it wasn't, you were like, eh, okay, I guess I'll just sit at home tonight. Um, but that was kind of it. Like I, I love food. The creative side of me has always been that side of it. My, my enthusiasm is generated for this business out of cuisine and food, uh, and also service. Um, you know, the bar is low when it comes to service. So that's, that's another topic, but we'll get into it. Yeah. We'll get into that. Yeah. Food has always been the core, 
core value to me when it comes to this business and making it work. Yeah, for sure. So you go away to school, you come back, you're in Madison for a few years. Mm-hmm. At what point do you jump, uh, do you make the jump to New York City? Because obviously that's that's where you and I met. And um, so I know that side of your career. But but how, what brought you to New York? I had been thinking about it, you know, from 2000, 2001, 2002. I had enough friends out in New York where I, I was comfortable going out there, but I hadn't quite talked myself into it. It took me a lot to to get over the hump with it. And and in my mind, I'm like, well, what am I, I can't just move out there. What am I going to do? So I decided to go back to culinary school. And I went to what was then called the French Culinary Institute, which is now called the International Culinary Center, if I remember correctly. And that's, that's kind of what facilitated it. So in 2004 of November, right after Thanksgiving or right before Thanksgiving, I moved out and I went to culinary school and I started a different way of thinking because when you make that kind of jump from the Midwest to the center of everything uh, on a culinary level, it's a, it's a different way of thinking. It's a different challenge. It's a different set of skills that you have to develop. You're living in a city where anybody will help you, but at the same time, nobody cares um, <laughs> whether or not they have to help you. So I think that's really an important lesson in, in making that big move. But I was up for a challenge. Nothing in Madison was challenging me. So I needed to do something else. And I didn't have the resources at the time or really even the knowledge to own my own place. So why not go to New York and seek out different people, different levels of expertise and see what see what I can develop myself into? Yeah, for sure. So so talk to me about that experience then. So you had been cooking for years. So mm-hmm. you had learned a lot kind of, you know, on the line as you went along. But then... Talk to me about what the experience was like, really getting that formal training and going back to uh, going back to the basics and you know learning mother sauces and stuff like that. Now, getting the formal training, like they always coined it this way in the French Culinary Institute, this is where you learn about technique as opposed to recipes. So you learn the technique of making sauces, all the mother sauces and everything that went along with that. Braising was a technique. Cooking eggs, you know, all the different styles of cooking eggs. Those are all techniques. So when I went back to uh, culinary school, I was like, oh, this is a different way of thinking. Now, the other part of it that was important to me because it was really an eye-opener was the introduction of uh, acid to food. Growing up in the Midwest, there's not a ton of like vinegar or lemon juice that's added to anything unless it's put on the side of the plate or in a salad dressing. So uh, learning the use of acid in like heavy reductions, you know, when you would make veal stock and then turn it into demi-glace and using a little bit of acid just to brighten everything up. It's really kind of the secret ingredient in a lot of food, whether it be rice vinegar or balsamic vinegar or lemon juice or even, you know, sour cream in some ways. It's it's the it's the element that lifts everything up. Uh, so that was kind of the, the first thing. And then at the same time, being in such a multicultural, diverse nature, uh, of the culinary school where people from all over the world went there. That was really my first exposure to a, a hugely cross-cultural dynamic. Um, yeah, diversity is something that's, uh, you know, obviously crucial in, in cooking and cuisine, you know, when you're bringing literal flavors, you know, spices, herbs, ingredients, and then also techniques, you know, cooking techniques and things like that. Uh, that seems like a really, you know, like the lesson, you know, the adjacent lesson, you know, that's not in the, uh, in the curriculum. No, and it's true. And it's like, you know, fusion doesn't suck. I mean, maybe the term does a little bit, but 
when you get a bunch of people in a room talking about doing weird different things with food that they've never thought about before, sometimes you get some really awful stuff that happens, but other times you get some stuff that's uh, really interesting and quite fascinating. So yeah, absolutely. Having that influence for me, you know, one of the guys that I worked with was uh, from Israel. Another guy was from Korea. Another guy was a retired sheriff from uh, Iowa and he was going to culinary school because that was always one of his dreams. Um, you know, there were people from uh, China and there was an upper Manhattan socialite who was going to school. So, um, so I want to, I want to stick a pin in this because I want to come back to it, but, um, but this, I mean, it sounds like this has really influenced all of your work moving forward. And I want to know, I guess, specifically how this, you know, this diversity of flavor and this kind of mashup, this fusion idea, uh, influences, uh, how you approach the menu at 107 state. And, and maybe we'll get to that, but, um, are there any dishes that come to mind um, just off the top of your head where, where this idea has uh, particularly on display? Um, not for 107 State specifically. I mean, it's the market here is a little tighter. So doing things on it, like I, as far as the, the mashup of it goes, I have, like for instance, prime rib on Saturdays is still a big thing. Fish fry on Fridays is a big thing here in the Midwest. But I still have like going back to my roots, uh, not necessarily in a fusion thing, but from working with Joe Bastianich and Mario Batali, I have uh, shrimp, spaghetti with shrimp, uh, garlic, oil, and Calabrian chilies on the menu, which is now turning into a pretty well-ordered dish. We just put it on last Friday. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like I still, to me it's not so much the fusion element of things on the menu, but it's still the tributes to my past that I want to, kind of maintain. I like to, I like to revisit my history from time to time. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I continue to read, I continue to discover new things. And with the cooks that I work with, one of the ladies I have working with me is a student from Venezuela. Uh, and she's taught me a couple of things and I'm like, okay, cool. I think that's the common, that's what it's yeah, all I about. Think that's the common thread that's through, uh, it's woven through my adult life. And certainly I've tried to translate that here into the podcast in that, um, that I just keep learning and learning and learning. And, uh, the people that I really look up to, uh, the people I admire most, um, really have that, that hunger for, for learning more, for understanding more, for, for digging deeper. Um, certainly I think it's important. So you're at school, you finish up school. Where do you go from there? So you finish culinary school. What, what comes after that? Yeah, I finished, I finished culinary school and I had enough money to get myself through August cause I graduated in June and I had enough money to get me through uh, the month of August. And if I didn't have a job by the end of that month, I was probably going to have to leave the city. But I landed a good interview with Saks Fifth Avenue. And I was able to really honestly talk my say, myself into a job as the assistant, I think my card said assistant food and beverage manager for Saks Fifth Avenue. We opened up two restaurants, one on the second floor called H2, which was a, a doomed concept of a water bar. Uh, serving water, yeah, right. Serving water and salads, um, and then the concept, which is still there, which is on the fifth floor next to the shoes, called Snacks S N A K S, as in Saks. I get it. So go get your snacks at Saks, uh, which was a a tartine shop uh, that flew the bread in from France from the Poilin family. Uh, it was very high end. It was the first time I was managing my own space in New York City and really not knowing what I was doing on that level. But at the same time, I was able to cut my teeth and learn a lot about what to do. It taught me a lot about corporate 
uh, it's where I learned a lot about HR because I remember when Francis, who was my HR person, she goes, everything that we do today is how everything will be done in the future. And you know what? She was right. So that's funny. Yeah. Um, cause the way that HR is run now, the way that, uh, you document things, they were way ahead of the game on that one because they were a huge company and they didn't want to be sued. So that's, that's how well, that's where it was all born out, born out of. Yeah, it's interesting. This is something I wanted to touch on because um, because you've worked for small companies, you know, little mom and shop places. Uh, you obviously own a small restaurant now, you know, that's that's just you. Uh, but then you've also worked for for big companies, and I, I often think it's uh, it's funny that if if they learned from each other, right? There's things that small places do, you know, they, they can be really nimble. They can change the menus really quickly. They can, you know, overhaul, um, you know, basically overnight. Um, those are things that big ships can't, you know, big ships can't make uh, right turns. They, they turn very, very slowly. And yet right. on the other side, uh, there are things that big companies do like what you're talking about and how they, um, how they maintain their HR and how everything's documented and, and all of that, that I think smaller places can, can learn a little bit from there too. Um, it, it, do you find yourself uh, learning, applying a lot of those lessons uh, to your own place that you're, that you're now running? Yeah, I, I do. I think that the interesting part of that point that you make is that the pivot is easier to do in a small place, whereas in a large place, the pivot requires, you know, a solution by committee in most cases. Yeah, but in a small place, you still got to pay attention to the details. You got to make sure, A, are people being safe? B, are people being treated fairly? C, are you listening to them? And then, you know, most important in the litigious nature of the society that we live in today is that are you documenting things uh, as you see you need to. Uh, if you don't do that, you're setting yourself up for a harder time down the road. It's really funny. We were talking. Uh, so before we uh, before we pressed record, Nathan and I were talking a little bit about the most recent string, the, the three episode arc that um, that we just completed, that just uh, launched here on the podcast, where we were talking all about leadership, staffing, training, management, and, and how important the the people are in the restaurant, and uh, and how important it is to keep people happy and and understanding what uh, people look for in a job, what makes a good job, a good job, and and doing your best to uh, to make sure that you're creating an environment uh, where people can be happy, and uh, and certainly money is part of that, and um, you know, but but making sure that people are valued, um, you know, Nathan was saying how how obvious that is here, making sure people feel like they're a part of something, that they want to be a part of a community, and uh, I can't state it enough. It's funny that you know we're just coming off these three episodes, and here we are talking about it again. Well, no, I I just think that it's one of those things where it's like. Like people don't want to just come in and go to work. They want to have something more that they're going to learn. And that's part of what you have to provide as an employer nowadays. Um, if you're not doing that, people get bored, lacks the days cold. They're not paying attention to the details. Um, and in a lot of cases, I'm, I, my management style is, you know, I'll sweat the details a lot and other times I won't, but it depends on the context of the conversation. It's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a person who believes in micromanagement overall, but I, there is a time and place for it. So from a leadership standpoint, letting people know, like to me, it's all about letting them know when they do th- something well. And at the same time, making sure they're not repeating bad behavior, because if they're not, if they're doing that, they're not learning. They're not like, it's a constant training environment. So, yeah, I always think of it in, in terms of like a, like a two part, um, a two part thing, right on the, in the first part, it's about setting clear expectations, making sure people understand uh, what's required of them. And then the second part is the follow through, really um, keeping on them and making sure that people understand 
that you're watching and that you're, you know, you're overseeing and helping them get to where they need to go, helping them grow to get better, to improve, to, uh, to do what's required of them. Uh, and it's just, it, for me, it's always about bouncing back and forth between those two things. No, I think that's fair. I think that's, that's a very accurate way of portraying it. It's just how it is. Yeah. So you're at sex and at some point you decide to go to Becco. Yeah, I was, I was a regular customer over at Esco, their sister restaurant, which was just down the street. I lived in Hell's Kitchen, so I could walk down there. Uh, I was lucky enough to be kind of embraced by the place and, I could go down there and hang out once a week, and it didn't break my bank at the time. It probably would now. Um, well, you, have you seen? They just uh, they just reopened. They had closed yeah. for the summer to do a major overhaul, big renovations in the place, and it looks like a million dollars in there. Yeah, and I wish Dave luck because it's it's that that's a hard neighborhood. But Dave's got a good following there, so I think he'll just be fine. I'm not worried. Yeah, about and now he's space. the uh, the sole owner. Yeah, the, which is um, great. You know, I mean, yeah, which is which is pretty cool to see. It'll be he's the one who did see. all the work. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, where that continues to go. So, okay, so you're a regular at Esca. Uh, I also love Esca. I think it's a it's a great restaurant. It's the restaurant I went to with my wife on the night we got engaged. Uh, so it's a it's got a place that's near and dear to my heart. So you're a regular there, and you find out about yeah there Peco, was or? yeah there was a, a manager there by the name of Marina who uh, I said, do you think you got anything in the group you know anywhere you know that I could go to. And she's like, sure, uh, let me check. And she talked to Jeremy Enzi, who was the uh, really the GM and, and sommelier of the place uh, up at Becco on 46th Street. And she she called me up a day later and goes, go talk to Jeremy and see where it fits. And then I went over and I had an interview with Jeremy and talked to Billy. I, because I came recommended from Marina, they already kind of believed in my capabilities, which was both good and bad because I was walking into a behemoth of a restaurant that I had no knowledge of the inner workings of a restaurant that was going to be as busy as it was. Uh, yeah. For, for everyone who doesn't know Becco, I'll just uh, hit the pause button here. So uh, in New York City, uh, right in the heart of the theater district, right outside of Times Square, it's on 46th Street, which is known as Restaurant Row. And for the most part, that entire strip is all, you know, just like little kind of restaurants that have been there for years and years and years. And Becco is kind of at the end of this this long line, and it's just this little uh, townhouse. It's in the um, the basement level of this, and I guess the second floor of the townhouse. And it's now side by side, right? It's two, it's two, two townhouses, townhouses yeah. side by side. And it's this enormous restaurant inside, and they do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of covers every single service, and it's it's really a machine. So, uh, so when Nathan says he's you know coming in to uh, to take over this behemoth of a place, it is uh, it is no joke. It's a it's a lot of personnel to oversee. It's a lot of uh, guests in and out. It's a lot of it's a lot of meals coming out of the kitchen for sure. But yeah, that was that was kind of how it it stepped up, and I actually took a little bit of a pay cut to go there, but I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to work for Joe Bastianich. I wanted to work for him or Danny Meyer or, you know, Danielle in the, the Dynex group or something like that. That was kind of what one of the goals that I set for myself. So when I had the opportunity, I'm like, well, I have to take it. And I remember I they, they were like, go see Joe because Del Posto had just opened up at this time. And they said, go see Joe down at Del Posto. And I went down there and I said, I, Joe was actually at the host stand. And I said, uh, Mr. Bastianich. And he goes, just call me Joe. I said, okay, Joe, I'm Nathan. Uh, I'm your new service director at uh, Becco, but they wanted me to come down here and meet you first, I think. And he goes, you know you're not going to get rich in this business, right? And I said, uh, okay. And he goes, all right, I'll talk to you later. 
And that was, <laughs> and that was my first conversation with Joe Bastiano. Truer words were never spoken. <laughs> right. And then I went back to Deco and they're like, did you meet Joe? And I said, yeah. They said, okay, well, can you start next Tuesday or something? And I said, sure, that sounds good. And then I walked into a place that was roughly doing anywhere between 750 and 1400 people a night. So, and I was like, it's absolutely insane to be there for dinner and to watch this many people coming in and out of the place. Yeah. Watching an entire room turn like 75 seats all at once being sat all at once and making it all work. I was floored. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, what did I walk myself into with this? So then I assume there, because uh, I know you were uh, you were a beloved manager there uh, with your staff. Is that where you kind of put together a lot of your management style or um, had you already picked up some stuff? Uh, you know, tell me about what you learned there and kind of what, what you brought with you. Well, it was kind of funny when I first got there, my first year and a half to two years were actually kind of tough because I was actually there at a transition time when all the stuff that I learned at Saxon Avenue with the HR stuff, I was trying to put in there. But the culture didn't necessarily buy into it yet because they were still operating as like independently small restaurants. But even though they were part of this bigger group, you know, Baba was open, uh, Del Posto had just opened, there was Oto, there were all the other restaurants that Joe and Mario and, and Lydia had. So they were still being kind of run as, uh, you know, brick and mortar hole in the walls, but they weren't that anymore. So I kind of fought a little bit at first. And a lot of times Jeremy and, and Billy thought that I was fighting the culture, but it wasn't so much that. I was just saying, guys, you got to think about this a different way. Uh, but there were other times when I just sucked, too. So uh, that was there was no question about that. Learning in, in this environment was very steep. But I had I was lucky because I always, I always learned you're going to become a better manager through the best waiters and staff that you have not necessarily because of the people that you're working for. So my lead waiters, Nino, Rafe, Mitch, Tim, these were all guys that really kind of took me under their wing and said, do this. Now, that doesn't discount Billy Gallagher and Jeremy Enzi, who were fantastic and, and really like taught me the do's, the hard do's and don'ts of the business. You know, this is where you go. This is where you don't go. These are the attitudes that you maintain through the business as far as service goes and, and the level of expectation, all those things were true. But when it really came to the nuance of working with people, it was working with the, the lead service there that was kind of more important to me. These were also guys that saved my, my butt because uh, later on when I was getting ready to open up Italy, they told me a story about Jeremy and Billy going, okay, do we keep them or do we let them go? And they voted <laughs> to keep me. So, uh, isn't that but funny that, when you hear those stories later? It was. And it was funny because I always tell this story. Joe, Joe's a very fair person overall. And like there was one time when I had a bad quarter and he was handing out bonus checks and he pulled out mine and he goes, see this? This is your bonus check. And I said, okay. And he goes, do you think you deserve it? And I said, I don't think I had the greatest quarter. He goes, all right, I'll make you a deal. I'll take this one. I'll put it in my pocket. If you have a near perfect or perfect quarter, this one that we're in, at the end of it, I'll give you this check plus the next bonus check. And I said, well, that seems fair. And he goes, you know what happens if you don't have a near perfect quarter? And I said, pounding the pavement? He goes, mm, maybe. And to me, that was good. And I, I performed. And after that, I was part of the culture of the restaurant. I understood it. And I understood what they wanted from me, which was easier. Um, at first, that was, I think, kind of the challenge. I wasn't quite sure what they wanted from me, but... Um, that's okay. That all worked out. So, was that just because they weren't clear from the beginning, or was it just? Um, what do you think that was? I think it was just that it was just that hard of a learning curve, to be honest with you. 
when you go from working in a place that's doing a hundred covers a night to a place that's doing a thousand, like everything is so much harder and getting to understand it. I mean, even though the mechanics are the same, you know, you're writing a schedule for 48 people as opposed to writing a one for, you know, 10. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's you're managing 48 people's lives at that point. So, uh, that's all a, a different challenge. I didn't know the rhythms of the city in my first year there either. Like I didn't know that black Friday, the day of shopping was going to be probably the second busiest day of the year. Nobody told me that. So when I wrote the first schedule for it, I only scheduled like three people for lunch. Didn't know it was going to be shows all day long on Broadway. And we were probably going to serve 350 to 400 people for lunch alone. <laughs> right. So right. Those, those were some things that people left out and didn't tell me. But I think that's a lesson that applies to uh, certainly uh, running your own business as well. Like, True. you know, it's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from the mistakes, move on and don't make that same mistake the next time. That's true. And that was very much the culture at Beko. It's like, make the mistake once, learn, move on. We don't dwell on it. And I, I have applied that throughout my management since. Yeah. So you were at Beko for uh, for several years and you go from there to open up Italy, which is, you know, now kind of a global brand. It's, you know, all over the place. It was this huge, huge space. Yeah, 40,000 square feet of Italian food, kind of like uh, we always call it Disneyland for food. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm sure there's a book somewhere, uh, somewhere inside you talking all about that, that opening process. Uh, but I don't want to go too deep into it because I think it's kind of its own thing. And I, and I think I want to get to talking about 107 State. But right. so you go to Italy. Um, you worked at a hotel then in the city, The Stand. Is that right? The Strand Hotel. I believe it's now yep. um, a Club Marriott or something like that on 37th in between 5th and 6th. Right. And then you go to work uh, briefly at New Leaf. True. Uh, that Way was, uptown. Yeah, that was Bette Midler's place, and that was really kind of an interesting opportunity for me. Um, I had done a couple other things in some consulting here and there. Uh, and then uh, Fern Thomas, who used to be the director for Sotheby's, who had taken on uh, the New Leaf restaurant with the charity organization that it was associated with, uh, she was interesting, and she was really nice, and she called me up, and my daughter had just been born, and she's like, do you want to do this? And I said, sure, and we negotiated the price on it. And then three months later, I moved to the Bahamas. Right, which is which is what I want to get to. So you're working in management, and you get a call from a colleague who's a private chef for a wealthy family in Philadelphia, and she says there's an opening on the family's culinary team, which sounds bizarre to even say, but that was what it was, right? Yeah. And they had two private chefs. And one for their main residence on the main line outside of Philadelphia and another mm -hmm. one at their home in the Bahamas. <laughs> so you get the job and you pick up your family uh, with your newborn daughter and you mm -hmm. go live in the Bahamas for a year. You got to tell me about that experience. Uh, tell me about what that was like and and we'll go from there. Yeah, the process just started out with... Uh... Kathy uh, Reche, who is a good friend, she's just like, hey, would you ever go to the Bahamas? And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm like, talk to me when you want to. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, talk to me when you want to be serious about it. And then about July rolls around and she's like, all right, well, I think you're getting ready to make a move. Do you want to come down and cook for him? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, are you serious? You really think I should go to the Bahamas? She goes, you're a talented chef. I know you very well. I think you can do this. It's, it's, you get, there's a lot of benefits to the package. She's like, you have no... You know, you have no money going out. You don't have to pay rent. You don't have to pay for a car. All you got to pay is for food. And I'm like, okay. I go down and I cook for him and we make four courses, which is a roast chicken, a lemon tart for dessert, 
uh, I think I did some shrimp as an appetizer, and I forget what the opening course was. I think I did some lobster. And I sat down with uh, the client, and she goes, okay, I want to hire you. And I said, all right. And she gave me the price, and she told me about the insane home we were going to have and all this stuff. And the nice thing is we were living off-site. We weren't living on the estate itself. Right. So they, they put you up in a condo down there that um, that rivals what most people's homes are. I mean, it was thousands of square feet. Yeah, it's probably three times the size of the average. Actually, probably five times the size of the average apartment <laughs> in New York City. I remember seeing the the, uh, the pictures and the videos that you guys uh, would send up. It was uh, mm-hmm. it was pretty crazy. And so that was a, a satellite residence off the main residence. <laughs> it was very storybook on a certain level. Um, Bahamas is gorgeous. And when I got there, they gave me a few weeks to get my footing and we got the family situated. We got ourselves taken care of. And then really the first weekend that I cooked for him was like the first weekend before. Uh, yeah. So we moved there October 31st, first weekend before Thanksgiving. And then they brought like the family and a whole bunch of guests down on Thanksgiving. So I did that too. And that was a whole different set of challenges because now like in restaurants, you have a set menu when you're a private chef, it's a different thing. And I had to do lunch for them when they were there. And they were fine with doing pasta for lunch because I was like, if you do pasta earlier in the day, it's actually better for you. And they were like, okay. So we did that. And then uh, dinner was four courses with canapes, salad, entree, and dessert. That was challenging. I happened to be there the year of 2013, 2014's winter, which on the East Coast was legendary for being as cold as it's ever been uh, in years. And like they were down in January for, you know, January has 31 days. They were down there for 29 of them. And then every, like I had two days off. Then on a Sunday, they would be like, we're going to go to Nobu. So you just take the night off. Now I still made them lunch, but at least I, I, I had the night off and I would go home and hang out with my wife and daughter. But those are, those are, most people don't realize that being a private chef is a whole different set of challenges. Depending on how big your ego is, you're not trying to repeat yourself. Now imagine that you're living in the Bahamas and the ingredients are limited, so you have no choice but to repeat yourself. How much ingenuity do you have? That was fascinating um, and a learning experience for me, learning how to manage myself on a different level creatively, learning to allow myself to rest so that my brain would be fresh the next day was important. And then just having the ability to enjoy the downtime when you had it, because like I said, the winter was so bad that year. They were there a lot. like They were there December, no less than... Uh, 25 days and they these were people that worked mobily if they had to and if they decided to come down on a whim from door to door it was a four-hour trip so from the time they left their house they got the got to the airplane hangar and reached the 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 villa on the on the paradise island that was that was how fast it would turn around um but usually they gave me a day or two notice so that I would have things shipped to the airplane hang- hangar and then they would bring it down and then I would fabricate it all there. I think the whole thing is so crazy, but um, uh, certainly a cool experience, you know, that n- not a lot of people get to do. No, and uh, I will never regret it. You know, living in the Bahamas was a challenge and I feel bad for them, especially now. I was located in Nassau, Paradise Island area, which didn't get hit by uh the hurricane that bad they had some minor flooding but you know abaco is a beautiful area and um, i don't think they have the infrastructure to fix it but that's that's a whole another conversation so yeah crazy so the interesting thing about you going to uh to go do this you know personal chef thing for a year is that up to that point so 
you come to New York, you go to culinary school, you get out of culinary school, and you go into restaurant management for years, and then this um, this family comes calling, and you decide to jump back in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> it was I, a little bizarre, yeah. I, no, I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's unique. I think everyone's trajectory is unique, and I think the path people take uh, defines you know where they go next and and what they do, which is certainly I think true with 107 State. So. You leave the Bahamas and you wind up in Seattle for a little while, right? As you're getting your footing because you had nowhere to go. And right. so you go settle in Seattle. And then eventually you go back to Madison, which is where you're from, which is where your family is. Correct. And start putting down your roots. And now you've been there for three years? Four years now. Just over four years. Four years. Crazy. So you got to Madison, you got back into management and, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you got into management, you know, to, to pay the bills and stuff like that. And you made a, you made a decision that you were going to start looking for a property so that you could open your own place. That was the, the main thrust of the reason to go to Madison. Am I wrong? No, I don't. That's, that's, that's fairly accurate. I, originally I went back there because there was a hotel project that I really believed in and I had been following since 2010. Uh, my father used to send me the articles about, uh, and the irony of it was it was the original hotel that I worked at before I left to go to New York, but they had done a hundred million dollar renovation on it. And I was like, okay, I want to go see what's happening. Then they were the, they were the people that paid for me to, to move back. Um, and, uh, I believed in the project. I still believe in the project. It was a, a great opportunity for me to go there, but yeah, in the back of my head overall, I'm still going, well, maybe I'll be able to get my hands on a space here so we can do something that's a little more novel for the city as opposed to just the general tavern culture that's here with uh, burgers, fries and sandwiches. Yeah. So this is where, you know, this is the main thrust of the, of this interview. This is really why I wanted to sit down with you because uh, like I said at the top, for as long as I've known you, uh, you've wanted to open your own place. In fact, there was a, a short stint there about six months where you and I uh, had partnered up with two other friends of ours uh, where we were looking at a space and we were sitting on a space here in New York uh, up in Harlem, uh, where we thought we could open a, a little burger place um, that would kind of serve, you know, higher end, you know, quality burgers. And that never ended up coming to fruition, uh, largely because the um, the owners of the space uh, that we were sitting on uh, just refused to die. They just kept going and going and going. <laughs> and eventually we just kind true, of uh, we just kind of let it all go and went our own ways. But um, but that was 10 right. years ago. And so, you know, again, as long as I've known you, we've... Um, this has been in the, uh, certainly something you've talked about and dreamt about. So you're in Madison now and you start looking around spaces and now I know you. And so I know that you've spent the last, I don't know, 12 to 18 months at least looking at other spaces, uh, looking at other ideas. Um, talk to me about that. Where did you look? What were you exploring and what ultimately then got you to the space where you're at now and, uh, and the concept for 107 state. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, it was it was pretty much kind of like one of those things in in Madison. I we had kind of looked at, I had kind of looked at things and seen, okay, where's the opportunity here? Um, but a lot of things like, for instance, leases here are expensive. Um, you know, they are everywhere. I think, but at the same time, like a commercial lease on State Street, there's a place uh, I'm located on the hundred block of State Street, and then there is a place located down on the five hundred block of State Street that's not a lot bigger than what I am, maybe a little bit. And they're asking, you know, twice what our lease is. And if you don't have a liquor license, you can't make that. So I was looking for places that were 
a build out the bowl with minimal build out. You know, I didn't, I didn't want, I wanted a place that I was able to clean up and make look nice. If I had to spend thousands of dollars to get it to look better through lighting, I was prepared to do that. I was prepared to redo floors. I was prepared to redo walls if needed, but I didn't want to build a new bar. I didn't want to redo plumbing. Uh, those were all kind of key factors to me. And there were some places where you would stumble upon and be like, oh, this is the spot we should do it in. And then, you know, you look at it again and you, you, you spend a half hour across the street at another cafe that's across the street from it or something and you watch it. And something doesn't work. But the place that we have really just kind of fell into our laps. Uh, my business partner called me up and he goes, hey, we might be able to, to get this place at a pretty good price. And uh, we respect the owner and we treated him well through the negotiation process. And we were able to to do fairly well with it. We also were able to negotiate a lease that was, in my opinion, really fair. And also it's something that, like the one thing I learned from Joe Bastianich is that if you can't make your lease in a day, you probably shouldn't be in business. And I kind of I kind of believe in that. I don't think it's entirely true because when I say that to some people, they think I'm crazy, but I, I also believe it. It's like, if you can make your lease in a day or at least a weekend, then you know that you're in the right space. If you can't do that, then you're in trouble. Right. That's interesting. I've never heard that. I think that's uh, I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. And then once we negotiated the space for, it was about a two-month process. I think we started in mid-February, and then we closed on it in mid-April. And, you know, it's a, it's a, the, the, the factors, the unknown factors are always what's going to happen with, A, the lawyers, because you have to have lawyers involved with it. And then, B, you never know how the internal workings of a family are going to work out when you start really going down the road of what you're going to spend and the debt you're going to incur, uh, you know, is it really worthwhile? There's always, there's always a lot of doubt when you go through the process and this business, you know, it's, it's about, you know, it's about numbers and it's about belief in the product and you gotta understand what you're doing. But, uh, one thing I learned about this process, especially listening to your podcast was that you gotta know where you're going with it because if you don't have that idea, and even if what you open up isn't perfect for where you're at, at least you're setting a tone for the direction you want to go as, as opposed to letting the customers set the tone for you. I think that's really important to me because uh, both you and I know that you can't please everybody. So why try? Yeah, I think that's um, that's something that certainly emerged in my own work, uh, in the consulting that I do, and 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 certainly here in the podcast. It's that you know, you serve a very specific audience and you just be very clear about what you're doing. Hey, if you want this, then you come here. This is where you get this. And, uh, and eventually you'll attract the kind of audience, the kind of crowd that wants what you're offering, but you have to be really clear and really deliberate about, uh, about going after that, about what you're doing and how you put it out into the world. No, it's true. And the other side of it is that with my service background, I like when we were in the process of getting ready to open up, a lot of people were like, do you want to be the best restaurateur in the city? And I said, I have no interest in being the best restaurateur in the city. I want to be known as a place where people come to and they realize that they were treated very well and they walk away from it remembering that experience. Uh, because in, like, I, I think everybody who's a restaurateur or attempting to be a restaurateur has seen all the YouTube videos that are out there and all the things that go along with it, especially if you're really taking it seriously. But overall, in my town and throughout uh, most of the country, the bar is low when it comes to service um, and getting over it isn't that hard. It starts with just a proper greeting when people walk in the door. It starts with just getting people water on a timely basis. And then the hard part is really getting people to understand the culture of if it's empty, fill it or remove it. You know, all those little service details that you and I know so well, 
outside of the New York market, that's a hard thing to teach sometimes. So, and it takes discipline and repetition. So, yeah. So I want to, I don't want to leave that point because I think that point's really valid. So then how did that process go as you were working with your new staff? So you start working on the property, you start hiring staff and there are people who don't know what you're talking about. How did you, how did that process go where you were trying to show them a, a different way, a, a, a better way of, um, of serving people? It was interesting because we were the, we like, we were very lucky when it started, when we started the hiring process, everybody knows there's a labor shortage in this country right now, pretty much everywhere you go. Um, but I reached out to a couple of people that I knew that did some posting on Facebook and inside like we went from having zero staff to being fully staffed in a two week range. And this was right before we were getting ready to open up. So we were very lucky with that. And then we did one week and, and like in New York, you would do two to three weeks of really hardcore training. So everybody knows where they're moving, how they're doing. And we didn't have that kind of budget or that kind of time. So we did one week of very hardcore training with the staff. And that was me really talking about culture. I had steps of service that I went over with people and we constantly reinforced that. But you can't talk about that for five days. People will, will lose their minds, you know, going over <laughs> steps of service. Um, but we talked about engagement. We talked about how we move and getting out of people's ways. We talked about wine service and why it matters and you know, and also the same thing about folding a napkin when, you know, this, this is a cultural thing. Somebody gets up and leaves the table, fold the napkin for them and put it back down. Don't put it on your chest and fold it either, which I've seen like busboys do. Um, <laughs> so it's two sides. It's, it's, yeah, this is what we do and this is why we do it. Exactly. And then the irony of it is that I had like, we were fully staffed in my opinion. I had two pretty good guys in the kitchen with me, you know, there to expedite. I had uh, really good staff with uh, intelligent, thoughtful people that took tons of notes when we when we did the trainings and the, the exercises. And then when we opened up, we opened up in the middle of June, right after the university broke and all of the schools broke in Madison, and nobody was around. Well, lucky you! You opened a restaurant when uh, everybody left town. <laughs> exactly, and it was it was awful, and it was one of those things where we had a couple of pretty good days here and there, but by the time we got to like. Fourth of July, everybody's out of town for Fourth of July. And then concerts on the square started. So everybody's eating at the food carts up on the Capitol Square and all the brick and mortars are empty. There was just like this whole stretch of really unhappy, just empty moments where, and it, not even just empty moments for the restaurant, just empty moments in your life when you're going through the process going, all right, I've opened up this place and I'm going to be closed in August. And you're, you're talking to yourself and it's hard to stay optimistic, but you know, I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by a lot of very good people. They understand the business really well. Uh, we were developing regulars, but the regulars were like, I don't want to tell you about it because it's the best place in town. And I'm like, <laughs> that's not what I need right now, guys. Like, you got to gotta bring, at least bring me people. You're not going to tell anybody. Bring people. So these, that was a whole set of challenges that we faced. You know, and it makes you it makes you despondent at times. I was getting emails from my, my partners and I didn't want to talk to them. I, I didn't want to be like, hey, we're failing. But like I said, I'm surrounded by really good people and, and they understood it. You know, we all, we got back into town and we had a couple of things that turned around for us. We got our outdoor patio set up. We didn't realize that was going to take so long. We had sent in the application and got all these things taken care of. So we thought it was just going to be kind of an exercise in form and forms and paying out uh, some money for the, the permits and stuff like that. But then getting our, our permit to do the outdoor patio took four weeks. We thought we'd have it by mid-July and we didn't have it until the first week of August. Wow. Yeah. So half the summer. <laughs> and Yeah. Right. And 
once we had the patio outside, we had a lot more exposure because this was also where we we realized that we had a problem uh, with concepts. We opened up because we modeled it after a place that we loved dearly in New York City called Manetta Tavern, which is very much a speakeasy uh, element. The blinds are closed. You look at it, you're like, what's going on in there? And then you walk in and it's just like this great, wonderful atmosphere. Uh, we opened up and people thought we were a law office because we didn't look like a restaurant. <laughs> That's funny. I know the exterior and it's, it looks really sharp and yeah. I think it achieves exactly what you were going for that, that, you know, speakeasy, that hideaway thing that you were, that you were going for, but challenging when you're trying to announce yourself. Yeah. The blinds that we wanted to keep closed, we pulled up and, you know, once we got the patio out there, people were like, oh, and it's funny because when you think of the small marketing tips that are out there, it's like on a Saturday morning when I get there, if nobody's sitting on the patio, I have them make me a Bloody Mary and I go sit out on the patio if the weather's nice and I sit down and there's 50 people that walk by and see it and out of that 10 people come in and start they're like oh I should have one of those too it's funny right you know it's funny the uh, the first restaurant that I worked in in New York City was uh, Bluefin in Times Square mm-hmm. which was uh, part of Be Our Guest Restaurants and again it's one of these big corporate behemoths but there were little things that um, that Steve Hansen, who was then the owner, um, who who's crazy in its own right, but uh, but also a genius. And there were little things that he had his hosts do, like and he called it about like I forget what it was called. It was called like showcasing the restaurant or something. He was like the first four tables get seated right in the windows. Yeah. The next four tables get sat, you know, so that when you walk in to ask the host to look at a menu, you see those four tables. Like you've got to. You know, you got to front the restaurant so that everybody's facing towards you so they see, you know, happy people enjoying their meal. You got to make it look like somewhere that people want to be. It's and it's it, that's one of the things that has never left me. And it seems so ridiculous. But on the other hand, you're like, ah, people want to be where people are. No, it's true. Um, that's, that's that's very true. People look at an empty restaurant and they're like, hmm, I wonder what it is. And then people see a full restaurant and they go, hey, let's go in there. It's a strange, strange phenomenon, but it's totally true. It's like, oh. Let's go someplace and wait to get in. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> okay, so you uh, so you open up, you finally get your patio, you decide to just, you know, either you or somebody heads out there and just enjoys a Bloody Mary, and it signals to the people that, oh, there's something going on here. Right. It's like, it's so simple, it's so stupid, but it works. No, and the, and the patio is definitely a call to action, and right now we're working on getting a, a blade sign done that just says tavern on it that's going to be, you know, coming out so that you can see it from, you know, walking down the sidewalk. Lighting to me is very important as well. The, the, the interior of the restaurant is lit beautifully. It's soft and it's warm. Uh, and that's something that I really focused on. But at the same time, like now I want to focus on the lighting of the exterior because the lights that we have on the outside actually point into the restaurant. And I don't need that. I need them to point onto the sidewalk. So like our frontage is lit up. You know, these are the, these are the little things. Yeah, interesting. So let's pause for one second here and just talk about what 107 State is, because uh, most people listening to this podcast uh, are not in Madison, Wisconsin. And so so talk about it. So it's on State Street. It's in the 100 block. It's what, two blocks away from the state capitol? Uh, one block away. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we are just 35 steps away from the capitol. Uh, we are in one of the most heavily densely populated areas of the city. But Madison is a strange town, and it's like a place where you have to insert yourself into people's rhythms. We are a tavern overall. If you talk to certain people, they say that we are a gastropub because we, like, for instance, the food that I do, I don't just buy chicken wings, pull them out of a freezer and throw them in a fryer and put them into a box. I buy organic chicken wings. I smoke them. I season them first, I let them sit for a day, then I smoke them uh, for an hour and a half, 
and let them cool properly, and then they get fried. Everything that we do with the food is a process. Everything that we do is made in house. Everything is prepared there. We use nothing but fresh vegetables um, as long as we can. You know, we're right next to a farmer's market, so uh, there's two farmer's markets a week presently, and we can always find stuff to to use for it. The menu is kind of a tribute to nuances of things that I loved in New York City, and, and some of my partners did as well. Like. It's funny because I've never been a big sandwich person, but in Wisconsin, you need to have sandwiches as a as a tavern concept. Uh, and then we do entrees after five o'clock at night. We started out with a place that we built for ourselves. You know, there was a lot of nods to Italian food at first, some French techniques, some Louisiana as well. And then as we realized, people didn't care. But as soon as you put a turkey melt on the menu, people were like, ooh, let's go get a turkey melt. And those were parts of, you know, little give and takes that we had to do in order to get more people into the door. You know, it's, it's you, you can stay true to concept and true to form, but if, if you're not making any money, then none of it really matters. So we have done a couple of pivots here and there concept-wise, but that's at the same menu-wise, I should say, but that's where the concept of being just 107 gives us the flexibility to do that. We can evolve into something else as we go forward, or we can change, like if the economy tanks, all we're gonna do is sandwiches, you know? The entrees will probably go away they're more of a high high ticket item but you know i was opening up with dry age steaks and things that we were doing in-house that were really quite exceptional and it ticked with the public a little bit but it never got us any real traction but the number one selling thing is the 107 burger which is just a very basic simple burger done with brick cheese and caramelized onions and a really nice uh, locally made roll and that's really kind of where we're at right now so then um as you're getting people in are there still items on the menu that are that are things that you're really passionate about? Because uh, you say you pivoted a couple of times, but yeah. I assume the menu hasn't shifted completely, that there's still some of the the stuff that you want to introduce people to. Do you see people uh, taking to those, trying? No, they aren't. Like one of the things that I fell in love with when I was in New York is that if you went to a steakhouse, you could get a gigantic plate of bacon as an appetizer, and it was always something that was fantastic. And it's something that I brought to my place as well. And it's it's caught on. We actually had people posting about, you know, getting the half pound of roasted bacon and then they were dipping it into their Bloody Mary on Instagram. So I was kind of entertained by that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was like, oh, how sweet. But yeah, like certain things like that. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to have a Caesar salad on the, the menu just because I know that it sells. But recently we've done a grilled Caesar salad <laughs> and people are like, what's a grilled Caesar salad? What's a grilled Caesar salad? Because around here, nobody's ever really had it. So when they have it, they're like, oh, this is fantastic. But you can see that the sales since we put the grill on it have just slightly ticked down a little bit because I think people are afraid of it. Interesting. But that's that goes back to like, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past. You've got to know your market. Uh, it's fine to do things that are experimental. But when you open up and if nobody shows up, it's not necessarily because you've done anything wrong. A, it's partly because nobody knows you're there. B, it's because people are afraid to change their habits. You know, we have a very successful restaurant, two of which, uh, which are just around the corners from us. And the owners are both good friends of, of myself and, and the partnership. And they really are uh, supporters of ours. Uh, uh, and that's, that's value that you can't take away from because like when Peter sends us people, I know that he's doing it because he believes in what we're doing. And that's, that's an important thing. Same thing with Lucas, you know, because there's only so many seats in the city and you know how are you going to be different to capture it and why why do people care to come there and then at the same time how are you going to let them know that you're there that's you i think getting people to know that you're there to me has been so far like the biggest challenge yeah so what are you guys doing how do you uh, how do you get people 
to know who you are and where you are and what you do? I still like I still believe in the whole organic method is it, it all starts with the guest first. Our comp budget right now is double what it should be uh, because we are constantly giving away stuff so that people talk about how they're being treated. Uh, same things with paying attention to service and notes of service so that people understand that we care. That's the first level of it for me. The other level of it is uh, we recently had some cards made cards made that said half off an appetizer and it was like had my name on it, the name of the restaurant. And we went around and gave them to all the valets and all the concierges in the hotels. And then we gave them to all the local business people and the bankers and stuff like that. So that was another thing. And then this week we will be uh, producing a flyer. We are literally going to go to the Capitol and stuff flyers underneath all the office doors in the Capitol, which is probably about a thousand offices, I would imagine. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah, probably not. But <laughs> I, I think we'll, you know, we'll do it on a day when we we know it's going to be a little quieter. So we'll have, maybe have a little prosecco when we do it or something. I, don't know. I um, I, I'm I'm a big uh, proponent to this. I, I I've kind of said this over and over and over again. Uh, I subscribe to the grassroots efforts before you do anything, you know, kind of fancy and digital. Um, I think it's all about word of mouth, and it is about making sure the experience is as great as it can be. Uh, the dining experience that is, and make sure that people uh, people are blown away so much so that uh, that people want to leave and go, oh my god, and they have to talk about it. They want to mm-hmm. they want to take a picture of it. They want to post that they were there. They want to tell uh, tell their friend or their you know their colleague the next morning when they get to work. Ah, oh, dude, you'll never believe where I went last night. Yeah, um, some people that just came in uh, Saturday night. Um, I, I looked at them and I'm like, I know they've been here before, but I couldn't place it. And then when they got their uh, when they got their bill, they handed over a, a, a guest check on it that had my writing on it that said 20% off next visit. Um, so there were there were little things like that that I did because I knew that if I did it, nobody's going to turn down that whole you know nobody's going to turn down free money overall unless you what you what you're doing is so bad they they really don't want it and nice nice thing is i know that what we're doing is not bad like this past friday night you have the the trials and tribulations of a restaurant my dishwasher had hurt his back he could not work and then we were busy enough to where we sold out of food by like nearly nine o'clock uh maybe a little bit after that but as i'm doing dishes because i'm cooking and doing dishes i'm seeing all the plates and almost all of them are empty and that's that that, like if your food sucks then it's going to come back and it's going to be on the plate yeah for sure so that, that was encouraging to me uh, especially with the, the amount of volume that we had done that night, that was hopeful because you know there's when you go through this process, there's a lot of despair, and then there's a lot of uncertainty, and then you have your successes at times. And what you got to realize is that what you're getting into is a rhythm, and that's you can't take one day and think it's the the be all end all of how your business is going to be. You got to look at everything on a on a seven to uh, 21 day trend and see where you're going. Yeah, I think so. I think with a lot of this stuff, there's always a um, there's always a runway that's required when you're taking off and when you're landing. And I think, yeah. um, you know, just like you couldn't hold yourself, uh, you know, you couldn't look at July and August and judge the the success of the business by that. Um, you know, the same is true with a lot of other things. You know, with your menu development and you know how you're attracting your audience and all that. I think it takes time. It does. You know, I think you know so much of it especially with a new product, which for all intents and purposes, 107 State is a new product. Yeah. It's a restaurant, so it's got a category, right? We know what kind of product it is, but it's a new product. And I think um, and I think trust is a big deal with consumers. 
especially it's not a you know it's not a three dollar product it's it's 50 bucks it's 100 bucks it's whatever it is to take out a family of you know to a couple to go out or a family of four or five to go out that's um that's not an insignificant number and so trust becomes a big thing my wife and i always talk about this here in the city so often we end up going back to uh to the same places because we're like listen dinner's not cheap the babysitter's not cheap i just want to make <laughs> yeah, sure i have a great right? meal exactly and, you know there are 12 new restaurants that opened that I'm curious about, but but not enough, you know, to, to risk a bad meal because um, then it's just all this wasted money. It's, a, it's an interesting thing, and I think it takes time to build up trust. It does, and I think the other thing is, is like, you know, how do you, like, this is kind of how I looked at it when we when I realized where we were at once we hit, like, after the 4th of July. How do you insert yourself into the habits of people that have so many particular set habits? Like people, what, there's a reason why Cooper's is busy, which is one of our, our neighboring restaurants. And part of that reason is because of their bartender. His name is Travis. He's wonderful and he's fantastic and he's funny. Um, but the other part of it is because it's the place where people have been going and it's consistent. And people are like, oh, we're going to meet at Cooper's tonight. Well, how do you get them to go, oh, we're going to meet at 107 tonight? And that's that's the harder question to figure out sometimes. It's like, how do you insert yourselves into the psyche of the diner? You know, that's like like you and I just were talking about. It's really all about being consistent, delivering the product, and you know, trying to get people to understand that we're here and we're good at what we do, and we're happy that you're here. I think that's part of the the education that you go through when you open up a place. Yeah. Now, you know, the other piece to this is that you said from the beginning that you wanted. Um that you wanted yourselves to, you wanted the restaurant to really be known for service and really taking care of people and being, um, being a place where people could come to, to, to get taken care of. How has that been catching on to people? I mean, this is the thing that I always think about is that people only notice service when it's really bad. No, that's true. They don't say, I mean, sometimes they go, Oh, that was good, but they don't go, well, that service was really sharp. Most people who just don't understand the industry, certainly in the way that, um, that we do and that a lot of the people listening to this will understand there's just something that they can't put their thumb on, but they'll um, they'll remember that they had a good time or that people smiled or that, you know, how what's your experience of that? And I don't even know if it's if you can explain it. Well, no, I mean, basically, like we have the toast POS system, so it allows me to look at things in a different way. One thing that I do is that I track the numbers on the service side from tips. So like it allows me to have a conversation with the staff going, OK, Here's where our average is right now. Here's where our high end is. Here is where our low end is. And this is what we're gonna work towards in the future. Right now, our average uh, tip for the space, which I'm actually pretty impressed with, is about 19.6%, 19 19.8. Uh, so that's that's a good place to be as opposed to being yeah, like the sure. 15% category, which would be like awful to me. Um, but that's only one data point. So the rest of it, when it comes to service, is just a constant atmosphere of training. And, and really me walking around and whispering to people, okay, get that glass. No, don't do that again. Okay, good. Thank you for grabbing that. You know, Making sure that when people leave the staging area, they're delivering something. And when they're coming back from it, I mean, this is really honestly in this market, one of the hardest things to teach. Coming back is to pick up stuff that you see that needs to get off the table. Not any table, not just your tables, all tables. Like, and that's the team environment which people are learning, um, but it takes time. Yeah, for sure. 
and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, in order for me to get the restaurant to the service level where I think it needs to be, it's going to take six months to a year for people to really understand how to move, how to do the processes in order for it to become instinctive because it took me that long to figure out how to manage myself at Becco. So I, I, I'm not the brightest cat in the world, but I'm not dumb either. So it's like, you just gotta, <laughs> you know, you just gotta make sure that you stay at it. It's repetition and education. And, and I always equate this back to Billy and Jeremy at Becco. Do the right thing, regardless of what it is. A lot of times in larger corporations, the right thing gets lost in HR. It gets lost in a discussion because people are wondering what is the right thing to do. Well. Oftentimes it's staring you in the face. So if you do it, it'll usually rectify itself. You know, like I said, on Saturday, on Friday night, we, we sold out of food. There was one table that totally fell through the cracks, waited a long time for their food. And I just told my, my service manager, I said, comp it. And he's like, the whole thing? I'm like, the whole thing. I'm like, we did not deliver on what we were supposed to. And uh, again, my old boss said, if you're not comping one table a night, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. It's uh, it's so interesting. I think so much of the, you know, with a brick and mortar business, which certainly where the restaurant industry is, there, there are two marketing problems, right? Number one is how do you get new people in the door? Yeah. And then the second piece to that is how do you turn them into regulars? How do you turn them into repeat customers? Right. And then the third piece, I think, uh, especially nowadays, is how do you turn them into evangelists for your brand? Meaning, yeah, um, that's true. How are you going to inspire them to to talk you up and to, to take pictures and to say, Oh my God, this is where I went. Or we got to go or to, to recommend one Oh seven the next time they're going to go meet colleagues for drinks after work. So I always find that if you, um, if you compartmentalize it and break it down to those three areas, right? How do you attract new people? How do you get those people to come back? And then how do you inspire them to really talk it up? Right. I find it's easier to kind of, um, you know, it doesn't seem like this insurmountable task, which is like, oh, how do we market the restaurant? I'm like, okay, well, let's just come up with a plan for each three of those. Right. Uh, which it seems like you're um, you're largely doing. I love the, you know, the the half off appetizer or the twenty percent, you know, receipt things like that. And I think that's that that second part, right? How do you get people who are already here to come back? And um, right. Well, the other side of it is, it's kind of like, it's it's, I don't know. It's kind of like reaching people has to do with a feeling more so than it does with the food that you put in front of them. So when people walk in and if they feel like they've been treated well, I think long-term you're going to win, but the hard part is the short-term because if you're not pulling enough money, it's really hard to stay open. And those are the challenges. You know, when you talk about restaurants that are undercapitalized and everything else that goes along with that, those are the challenges that really hit you because when we opened up, we had we were fully staffed, which was unheard of in this market because like everybody is crying for staff right now. But we were fully staffed. We were nearly trained, as far as you know, we were going to be. Um, and I was anticipating like, okay, we'll be the new kid on the block. And I was thinking of like a New York restaurant opening where you hit six weeks of uh, craziness, and then you either succeed after that six weeks or you tank after those six weeks. And when we opened, we were ready to go, and nobody came. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was a totally, totally unique challenge to uh, my way of thinking. And you know what? I am not a marketer. I am not somebody who specializes in this at all. And it's a learning curve. And your show has been hugely influential in the processes and the, the, the nuances of how we've done certain things and tried to reach people on different levels. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. I mean, I think the the bottom line is that I just try to make it 
easy. I'm, I'm trying to get people to understand that um, that it's absolutely necessary, but it doesn't have to be, you know, big words and fancy tools. It's just it's just as simple as, you know, I said it in the very beginning, you know, what's your product, who's it for, and how do you reach them? So if you figure out what the product is, it's a tavern on State Street in downtown Madison. Who's it for? It's for the people who work and live around there who want this kind of experience. And then you're going to yeah. spend all the rest of your time just figuring out how you can reach them. The the tactics and the right. ideas that you threw out today, right? You know, sitting out with a Bloody Mary on the front patio, that's not going to work in, in another three months. It's going to be 12 below. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so you're going to have to come up with, you know, different ideas and, you know, um, the, exactly. the new signage. And that's and what I'm already working on right now. Yeah. Like how do we reach people when the patio is not there? Yeah, for sure. Because that, that's a whole other set of challenges after that. that. That also goes back to lighting, too. Yeah. Lighting is important. Uh, lighting is important in, uh, in, in all restaurants. I just was working with yeah. a, a client who, uh, who built out the space from scratch. I mean, just blew it out, spent millions of dollars on a brand new kitchen and new everything. And you walk in there, we walked in there like the third day and, uh, and the lighting was so awful. It was like this beige <laughs> walls with this one big bright red wall on the back and the lighting was horrific i mean not only was it super bright but it also didn't match you had you know this like whitish green fluorescent lights and then you had this kind of ambery like incandescent edison bulbs and then you had this <laughs> right. like purpley light i was like so it's too bright not everything needs to get put on a dimmer but then it's also mismatched. And I was like, nobody looks good in this light. Nobody wants to eat somewhere where you don't look good. <laughs> no, that's true. Most people, most people think lighting is just a, is just a method of, of doing something. But lighting is, lighting is more important than any, like if, if, if your guests look like ghosts, you've done something wrong. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about creating like an aesthetic, a feel, you know, an environment. And then, of course, the other piece of it was outside. You know, they had this big, beautiful um, flag outside because they weren't allowed to put any other signage on this particular uh, block where they were. Mm. But then they didn't put floodlights on the flag to highlight yeah. it. So during the day, you can see it just fine. But anytime after after dark, which, you know, ostensibly that's when people go to a bar, uh, you, you can't see it. And I said, so, so nobody's looking down this block and going, oh, I see something down here. Yeah. They got to actually walk down this block, which is between, you know, 6th and 7th. And if you um, if you know Manhattan, those avenues are really, really long. And so you got to walk halfway down this block to figure out that there's something down there that you may want to visit. The other thing I'll tell people is like, don't be afraid to negotiate for certain things too. Like we just got open table on our, our system because we were doing open table versus resi. We were negotiating different uh, ideas and thoughts. How do we want it to go? And we decided to go with open table, but open table also put out, you know, we'll give you two months for free. And I said, yeah, but your contracts for a year. I don't know if I want it. Well, we'll bring it down to six months because that's how bad they want to get the data of the guests that are coming to you is that they'll they'll trade you out you know that 500 bucks plus you know a six month uh, agreement as opposed to you know no nope, it's got to be for a year and this and that so they can get the data on the guests that are dining with you the game the name of the game is is all data points right now as far as emails information phone numbers all that stuff so that's that's something don't be afraid to negotiate it and when you're and when you're working with your vendors who are like redoing your floors or putting up tile walls or stuff like that, you know, throw out, Hey, I'll give you this plus $500 in credit in the restaurant because that like you and I have discussed that before. That's more valuable uh, because what are you actually giving away? You're not giving away $500, you're not paying $500 for it. You're giving away the product that you paid for. Yeah, for sure. Uh, 
So that's been very uh, beneficial to us as well. Yeah, it's it just it's going to force them to to come in and bring more people, and, and you know, and it, I mean, it's just a, it's a win win. Yeah. I, I totally I totally agree. I mean, and when we redid our floors, it was six thousand dollars to do our floors, and, and but the tabletops were awful. I'm like, can you redo the tabletops? And he's like, yeah, but they're going to be 130 bucks a piece. And I'm like, I'll give you 700 dollars in trade for the tabletops. And he's like, all right, I can live with that. So I think it's great. Um, there was, uh, just a series of questions I want to ask here as we come to the, uh, to the end of this. And I, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think it's, um, I think it's going to be really helpful to people who are listening to this. Uh, I'm hoping we're going to be able to do more of these. I've got a bunch lined up. Um, so uh, I'll say to the listeners, thank you uh, for hanging out longer. Uh, usually, uh, these podcasts are all between like 15 and 30 minutes because uh, I like them short and sweet because nobody's got uh, much time on their commute. And I know that's really the only time you have to listen to uh, to a podcast. Uh, but I appreciate you uh, putting in the extra time here. Uh, I appreciate Nathan being here uh, to talk about kind of the ins and outs, especially at such a an early stage in uh, in his restaurant. I think it's a I think it's an important time to kind of get into the the nuts and bolts and talk about this stuff. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I'm Hey, it's kind of cathartic, so it's OK. <laughs> we all need therapists okay so uh, a handful of questions that i that i want to ask you so as you've been going through this restaurant opening uh for 107 state um what was harder than you imagined hardest part was just getting open and just realizing that we hadn't reached anybody that i mean on a mental level that was the hardest the physical just, part just awareness yeah i mean realizing that we like even through social media we have been posting and when we were when we were building the place out, we had 15 people, 20 people a day walking in going, Hey, when are you opening? And then we'd be like this time. And then when we opened, we had nobody walking in. So it was just like, what did we do? Did we do something wrong? So it's, 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 you, you begin to mentally second guess yourself quite a bit. Um, the other part that's really hard is realizing what your expenses are. Um, you know, payroll is, is especially in the beginning is really expensive. Uh, your first liquor order is, really expensive because you're ordering a lot of product that you're going to put on the shelves but at the same time a lot of that product is still sitting on the shelves so then you just have money sitting on the shelves and then uh if you don't make enough money back then the vendors aren't going to sell anything to you and you need to replenish it so it's like how do you go about this uh, we were lucky that our timing worked out so that uh, once we got the patio open and going and we had a couple of really good weekends we were able to knock out a good chunk of that or original opening debt so instead of spending $10,000 on a liquor order, uh, we were spending, you know, two. And it was all stuff that we were replenishing because we had sold it. So the economics of that start to work in your favor eventually. Right. And then payroll. Payroll is a killer. Like, you got to watch it. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it. Especially now. I mean, yeah, I mean you know, as, and, a, as minimum wage goes up and up and up and, you and, know, and all that. Your kitchen payroll kills you your your high-end hourly people who help you manage things because you need them it hurts you but you know that's the cost of doing business and it's just it's payroll is something that if you're not careful with it'll kill you so that's really what it is you got to watch it and you got to be prepared to work you know it's like i know that tonight i'm gonna probably it's a monday night it's probably gonna be fairly quiet and i think i have one of my cooks coming in. i'm probably gonna send her home tonight just because it'll allow me the opportunity to a spend some time in my kitchen and also do some investigating to make sure that everything is labeled, everything is put together. I can taste things. And also it'll give me some time to create in the kitchen as well. Um, Cause oftentimes when it's quiet, that's what I'll do. Uh, but yeah, 
saving, you know, if you're going to have a night, we're only going to do 250, $300 in sales. And you know, half of that is wages. That's something that you got to be careful of. So you kind of mentioned this a minute ago, but on the flip side of this, what, uh, what was easier than you imagined? What surprised you as being, uh, Oh, that wasn't, that wasn't so bad. Things that are easy, meeting people, talking to people, getting them to understand who you are. And you know what, by the end of the day, that's what this business is kind of about outside of being a business. Um, and then really understanding that it's, it's all about the guest, but the guest isn't always right. I think that's one thing that culturally is changing right now is that, you know, the, 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 I think the days of the guests coming in and rewriting the menu so that they can be happy are, are marginally over. Like we're happy to help out with allergies and stuff like that. But when it comes to, uh, like if, if my bartender says, Mike, this guest wants me to make this drink. And I'm like, tell them no. And they're like, why? And I said, because if you make it and they don't like it, then they're going to not pay for it. So ask them if there's an alternative to the drink they would like to have that you can make. Them. It is interesting to see how, uh, I think that is something that's really changed over the last, you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Yeah, you're right. What, um, what's one thing you know now after having opened this place that you wish you knew before you opened the place? Uh, I never realized, to be honest with you, I never realized how hard marketing the place would be. Um, and that's, that's honestly, yeah. cause like, I'm, I'm good at staffing. I'm good at cooking. I'm good at service. Uh, I have a full comprehension of all these things. But like I was talking to a friend of mine last week, and he's like, where do you suck? And I'm like, I suck at marketing. And um, that is, marketing is, if you don't know what it is, it's really hard to do. Yeah, totally. To me, it's like like when, when, you, when you and I first started talking after, I, I think you had done like four or five episodes in the, the show and I started following it and like you and you would, you would actually help me develop part of the concept and over a conversation when I was standing in front of my place, looking at it. Yeah, um, I remember that conversation. Yeah. And that's like with the tactics and fundamentals that you're putting together, it allows us to kind of examine where we're going as opposed to just doing it for the sake of doing it. So that's the hardest thing. It's like any, I think I always say this, anybody can put together four walls with a stove and sell some beer and make some good food, right? But that no longer matters anymore. It's, there's so much more about it. Social media is important, but it's not the end all of everything. It's, it's a big chunk of it. But to your point, I think social media is more about branding and marketing has to be marketing. It's two separate things. Yeah, I think, I think social media is, you know, I always tell people, think of it like the new word of mouth. So it's, yeah. it's, one, it's a channel that people use to talk about what they like and what they don't like. But, but it's not something different or new. It's just a new tool to do the stuff that we already know. You know, word of mouth is the most powerful marketing device for our business, uh, as it is for most small businesses. And so right. just looking at it like it's it's just the same. It's, it's, it's just word of mouth. Some people are going to talk to their friends over the phone and tell them about a great meal. Other people are going to take a photo and tag 107 State. And um, But it, it's still the same thing. That's why I always... I urge people to not um, to not ignore kind of the, the grassroots efforts. Well, and I I still I just want to get this in. I still believe that you know it's like with social media, it's like okay, you get so many hits, you get X amount of followers, and all this stuff that goes along with it. But always remember the people that are following you on social media. Who are you gearing it towards? Because if you're gearing it towards you know kids in their early twenties, they might not have the dollars to spend in your place. So having all the followers that you can. 
uh, you know, if you wind up with 4,000 followers, great. But I'd rather have 100 people that have, you know, the, the dollars to spend in the place following me than 400 that just want to be there. Yep, yep, that's absolutely right. You know, I've run, so my business, Chip Close Creative, has, yeah, I don't know, 6,000 followers on Instagram. And I think maybe eight of them have hired me for one thing or another. So, <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> right? you know. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. And, um, you know, I'm grateful for the following and I'm glad people like what I put up there and, and all that stuff. But, you know, they're still not paying my bills. They're just, you know, a like is nice, but it's not, uh, it's not rent. <laughs> Um, tell me, because you've worked on both sides, front of the house and back of the house. What uh, I want to know both sides of this. What's something the back of the house knows that front of the house should learn? And then the other side, what's something that front of the house knows that uh, that you wish the back of the house employees knew? Well, I mean, they're both they're both physical jobs in different ways, right? Back of the house is more stationary, but it's still there's a lot of heavy lifting. There's heat, there's cold, you know, and just understanding to me, the variant of those degrees in, in both senses. That's kind of the one thing I want the front of the house to understand is like, hey, it's not back there. Like Billy, Gall Billy Gallagher on, on Thanksgiving day is back there slicing turkey all day. And I guarantee you by the end of the day, his body probably hurts a little bit and he's tired of turkey. Nobody <laughs> slices turkey for you know eight hours because they love to slice turkey. It's very important for people to understand that. But at the same time, the back of the house has to understand that dealing with the guest and this is something that I try to make sure that they understand is dealing with the guests is hard sometimes. You know, I, I love all of my customers, but there's always some crazy people out there that are just looking for something that's you know, like, I don't want to service to you because it's not going to be good. But they're like, yeah, but can I get this with oil on the side? And I want to make sure that the chicken is steamed. And I'm like, okay. But, you know, the reality of that is the color of money is green. So you get it to them because they're going to pay for it. But that kind of guess sometimes is cagey and they can be difficult because if the server, the other thing is you got to train the service so they understand if they don't have the answer to the question, say so. I'll, let me go find out. But don't continue a conversation if you're going back and forth with somebody. Get the manager involved and, and figure that out. Um, but yeah, the, the back of the house needs to understand how difficult the guest is sometimes because they're not dealing with them. Yeah, it's it's often you know out of sight, out of mind. And if you've never dealt with that it's funny one of the restaurants that i'm uh, that i'm working with now uh they've proposed um like a, a front of the house back of the house swap so it would be a three-day training uh like almost like an externship where uh where captains or waiters would do three days you know one day on prep one day on garmage one day back on either saute or grill not that they get to do anything but they can watch and you know you know be part of the prep and stuff like that and then the other side is that we take cooks and you know, put them in shirts and ties and, and have them trail out front in the dining room for three days. And uh, one of the sous chefs had recommended it. And I said, oh, my God, we have to do this. This would be so illuminating. <laughs> that or it might be a high call out, right? Yeah, <laughs> that too. But I think uh, I think the potential upside could be uh, could be pretty great. Awesome. Nathan, I want to thank you for uh, your time today. Um, before I let you go, um, just tell the listeners where they can go to learn more about you and 107 State. Uh, we have a website address, which is 107state.com. We are on Facebook at 107 State. We are on Instagram at 107 State. And if you want to talk to me or call me, feel free to do so uh, at the restaurant. The phone number is on the website. I am usually pretty accessible. And if I'm not there, just leave a voicemail and I always return my calls. So unless I owe you a lot of money. <laughs> uh, dude, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, I'm excited to uh, to go out to the restaurant in November. Uh, my wife and I have yeah, booked be a trip out uh, to visit some family in Chicago. And we're going to make the uh, the two hour 
trip up north to Madison. We're going to spend the day. I think we're going to shoot some food, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we will share that uh, on social media when we uh, when we get together. Uh, but I'm excited to try the restaurant. Uh, I wish you uh, tons of luck. Obviously, lots of love to the family. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for sharing your story today. I really appreciate it. Thank you as well. And uh, uh, best to your family as well. And I, I wish you luck with all this endeavor. I think you got a good thing going. Really appreciate it, man. All right. Be well. Once again, I appreciate you guys listening in. I hope you uh, I hope you enjoyed this format. I know it's longer than what we normally do, but uh, but I think sometimes it's good to just get into the trenches and hear from someone else who's going through the same sorts of things that, that we're going through. Uh, my big takeaway here uh, was, uh, like you heard Nathan say just a few minutes ago, um, that he underestimated how hard it was going to be to market his restaurant. Um, in a certain way, he thought he would just open and then people would be uh, would be marching in the front door. And that largely has not been the case. It's taken uh, taken hard work and they're, um, they're employing several different tactics to get people in the front door. Uh, the other takeaway that I want you guys to come back with, and this is going to be the assignment for today's episode, uh, is that uh, marketing can be broken down into three different areas, right? I was talking about compartmentalizing things. So number one, how can you attract new audiences? Number two, how can you specifically turn those new audiences into repeat customers? And number three, how do you turn those customers into evangelists for your brand? I want you to do that this week. Just take one sheet of paper, write down those three questions, and, and start brainstorming some simple ideas how you can start um, applying those to your own business. For continuing education then this week, uh, it's going to be something a little, uh, a little unusual. Um, sometime this week or next week, I want you to go to a new restaurant, somewhere you haven't been. Nathan and I were both talking about, uh, you know, he's trying to get people to come out and try his restaurant. And I was sharing uh, in the interview that uh, that my wife and I uh, will rarely go out to a new restaurant because we have so few chances uh, for a dinner out alone without, uh, without our son uh, that we just end up going to the same places that we know and love. But, um, but I'm going to challenge myself and I'm challenging all you guys at home. Let's help out those other restaurants that are just starting out. So, so go to a place um, that is just starting out, that's relatively new or just some place that you've never been to before and, and see if you can't uh, make connection with that restaurant. I think uh, if we all did that, uh, the world would be, uh, would be a little better place at least this week. Uh, that's your continuing education. As always, I appreciate you tuning in. I will see you next time here on Restaurant Strategy. Restaurant Strategy.